The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount as the chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew are known, the most extensive, longest, continuous message of Jesus given in the New Testament. We've studied it before in this congregation, but it is something to come back to every now and then and be reminded, here is what the character attributes of Christians ought to look like when the Holy Spirit is working a new creation in their life. This is behavior that ought to characterize a disciple of Christ. Today we come to this reinterpretation, you could call it, although he, what he's really saying is people never understood it correctly in the first place, and now he wants them to understand it in light of new life in him. Listen as Jesus speaks in Matthew 5, beginning at 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is God's own holy word. There's a delightful piece of literature about the subject of retaliation in Mark Twain's great story of Huckleberry Finn. The boy Huck finds himself caught living close to two families who are feuding. Picture the Hatfields and the McCoys shooting at each other all the time in a blood feud. And Huck has never seen this kind of thing before, and he asks another character that's nearby to him, a man's name is Buck. He says, Buck, what is a feud anyway? And the man Buck answers, where was you raised, Huck? Don't you know about feuds? And Huckleberry says, well, I never heard tell of one before. Well, Buck says, a feud goes this way. A man has a rhubarb with another man, and he kills him. And then all their brothers go at it. And at last, the cousins chip in. And by and by, everybody's killed off. And then there ain't no more feud. But Huck, it's all real slow. It sure enough takes a long time. That's a Mark Twain comical definition of retaliation and rising up to measure out anger and retribution in equal ways that it might come to us. But when we're experiencing this, it's no laughing matter, is it? When someone insults you, someone fires you, someone writes a unjust job review against you, someone even strikes out at you perhaps with 
physical violence or great anger within the family circle. All kinds of questions arise from the passage before us today. Is there ever a time when a Christian should answer an angry retort or insult directed to them? Is there ever a time to go to a court of law? Is Jesus just teaching complete and absolute pacifism in every situation where we would never even defend our community or our nation against others' attacks? Does this text forbid Christian service in the military or in the police? Well, there's an awful lot that we could draw out of this, and I won't be able to answer all of those things. But first of all today, I want to begin by addressing the Old Testament passage that Jesus brought up here because he saw people abusing that passage and misinterpreting that passage and wanted to straighten that out. The passage is Exodus chapter 21. It follows the Exodus setting forth of the Ten Commandments and gives various other laws after the commandments come in Exodus 20. These other case laws, we call them, came in chapter 21. And specifically, what he was referring to was Exodus 21, starting at 22. There we read, if two men are fighting and a pregnant woman is injured, if the injury is not serious, the offender must be fined. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, to many, that sounds like a Bible commandment of go and get angry, retributive justice for any injury that is done. But here's where it's important to read the Bible for what is really being said and what it's really all about. Exodus 21 is a chapter in what we would call today in judicial terminology sentencing guidelines. In other words, if someone has been found guilty of a murder then it seems that Exodus was clearly saying with the authorization of God that a capital sentence could be brought against the one that caused that murder. If they caused a lesser injury, for example, the idea that a pregnant woman was injured but it was not serious, it was not fatal to the child or the mother, then a fine would be sufficient. What that text was saying was the punishment should match the crime. And it was talking about punishments in an Israelite court of law. It was not about authorizing individuals to go out and exercise their own kind of vigilante justice. Somebody wounds you, you go be sure you wound them. No, it was saying judges of Israel, be sure that your sentencing is according to just guidelines. Well, because people got carried away with that and and thought that it authorized them to go and do angry things to others, Jesus needed to correct what it really was about. And what he was saying was, angry people need restraints. They need to be held back. They need to be reminded that if someone's guilty of a fault, what they suffer as a penalty should be matching to the crime, not greatly Uh, out of bounds or way beyond what the crime was. So an eye for an eye, biblically, was limiting anger and revenge, not giving license to go and harm other people, as many people seem to think. That's what the Bible was saying. Well, let's jump from that because there's a lot more to say. And secondly, 
Another mistaken interpretation clings to this passage because people will take this as the broad general ethic of Christ, not for individual disciples, but for governments and nations and secular people of all kinds. And here we have to say, consider to whom this is addressed. And if you'll go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It specifically says in 5.1, he sat down and his disciples came to him and he taught them this is a life of a disciple. This is how you are to live a new life as my spirit stirs in you and my new life is working with you. So in other words, are we to take this text and say, aha, we have here a prescription for the fact that if a country is attacked, armies are outlawed and you should never have an army and never defend your country or never have a police force and uh, take a criminal under, you know, arrest or punish him because that is matching force for force, and Jesus says, don't do that. Well, no less a wise person than novelist Leo Tolstoy thought that exact thing. He wrote a book in the late 19th century called What I Believe, and in it, Tolstoy cited this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, look, Jesus gives here an absolute ground, now these are Tolstoy's words, to prohibit all forms of physical resistance under all circumstances. And Tolstoy said, armies, police, courts, prisons, these are all violations of Jesus' teaching of absolute nonviolence. Well, Tolstoy was just plain wrong in how he interpreted this word of Jesus. It is a word to disciples of how disciples live a new life, not how nations construct their armies or fight their wars. And one of the things we know for certain is that God's word does not contradict itself. And elsewhere in the word of God, it says nothing about it here, but in a place like Romans 13, we have specific teaching of God that Christians submit to the governing authorities. And Romans 13.4 says that the government bears the sword for the good of the society. In other words, Paul was teaching, we believe firmly this, that God sanctions civil governments using force constructively and defensively to uphold laws and on some occasions, if necessary, even to make war if that is the only way that justice can be asserted against a tyrant or an attacker. There is such a thing, we believe, in the Bible as the just war. Now, defining what that is is another day's task. I'm not even going down that road, but many things have been written on that subject. If the ruler of the state sees that a tyrant is coming, innocent people are being trampled on, genocide is being committed, gas is being used on civilians and these kinds of things, do we not believe that Scripture, and Romans 13 in particular, says the state must stand to defend its citizens? I was talking with someone after the first service today about her experience of living in England when the Nazis were attacking and sweeping across Europe in the 1939-40 period there before America got involved in World War II and 
and it began to appear that Britain was going to stand all by itself as one country after another and the European continent collapsed before the Nazis. Are we assuming that Jesus would say, aha, you people of Great Britain, many of you are Christians, uh, here's a tyrant who has struck you on the face, turn to him the other cheek and do not resist him. Well, no, not at all, because that's a completely different instance of what Jesus is talking about when he gave the individual behavior for individual faults that disciples might encounter. God certainly has established the protection of the state and the laws of the state to be enforced. And if the only way they can be enforced is by the use of arms, then that must, force must meet force. And of course, there's the question then. Well, many will say, and this is a big question in Lancaster County, where people will say, well, can a Christian do that? Okay, it's all right for those Gentiles to be in the army to direct the missiles and shoot people down and all of that, but a Christian shouldn't do that. Well, the struggle a Christian has is that we're a citizen of two different kingdoms. We're a citizen of the earthly kingdom, the state in which we live, the country in which we live, and we have responsibilities to that kingdom, and we are subjects of the kingdom of God, and we're not entirely to live in the exact manner of people that face this dog-eat-dog world and throw lawsuits at each other and throw bullets at each other. How often you listen to the evening news. I watch the evening news and just think to myself, how stupid. I'm sorry, I don't know a better word. Many people are. You know, you, somebody's having a, two men are having a discussion over a woman and, and the other one pulls out a pistol and shoots the guy. Really? I mean, is that the way we're called to settle things? Isn't there a more humane, more Christ-honoring way, certainly for a believer anyway, to settle things? We sit down, we talk, we reason, we work things out, and if necessary, the police become involved, but we hope that isn't needed. We're citizens of a state and a country, and we have responsibilities to it. And we're citizens of the kingdom of God, and at least in the individual realm, we have responsibilities there. There aren't always easy answers here. And certainly when there's a major war, and I can think back, I didn't live in World War II, I came along and all those babies that came running around after World War II, but uh, I think of how many in this county who were peace-seeking people, who sought peace in their lives, had to really face a crunch and decide... Will I go to the military? Will I respond to the draft? Can I perhaps be more consistent with my beliefs if I serve in a non-combatant role? That at least is an option, I think, that a, a citizen of the kingdom of God can take as not running from or being totally separated from national responsibility, but also perhaps honoring that peace-seeking if they're convicted in that way. But the point is here, God's Word doesn't contradict itself. When it says, individually, disciple, you're not to rise up. The road rage. Somebody cuts you off. Guys, this is our problem more than ladies, I find most of the time. What is that impulse of anger that you go, I'm going to get him. He got me. I'm going to race ahead and let him know that he was wrong. What does that accomplish? It proves that you're at his level, or maybe even below his level, and he's acting 
in a morally debased way, but you're acting as bad or worse. You don't need to do that. It doesn't prove anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. And God is calling you to, if necessary, be willing to lose something, lose face, lose a position in line, lose some money that you can probably replace to not be part of the dog-eat-dog, fist-meets-fist world. If our text is not a rationale for absolute pacifism, as some groups would teach and argue, then when am I supposed to turn the other cheek? Well, Jesus' concern here is to curb our spirit of natural retaliation. It rises up in us as almost a, a chemical thing in our blood at every pinprick of criticism. If you were fired, I know of someone who was seemingly very unjustly fired. How do you regard those that, that cut you off that way and treated you that way or, or criticized your work when you knew you were doing things that were right, but they were responding from their own selfish standpoint? We tend to worship ourselves a bit too much. I am the center of my universe. Jesus was saying, if anybody's going to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. How do you deny yourself? Well, you say, I don't have to put I in the middle of every event that happens. I don't have to assert my so-called rights all the time. The very specific thing going on in Matthew 5.39 is the delivery within Jewish culture of a formal insult. Now, there was an equivalent of this in 19th century culture in parts of Europe, especially in France and Germany, and it came over here to the United States. It surfaced in Aaron Burr versus Mr. Hamilton in a duel. Uh, when a, a gentleman supposedly would insult another gentleman and he would take a glove, his empty glove, and slap the man across the face, and that was saying, you're wrong, I challenge you, I'll see you next when there's a pistol in both of our hands. Well, thank goodness that is absolutely illegal in our culture today, and yet sometimes it still gets practiced on the streets of Lancaster and every city in America, as you well know. It's interesting here that it says when someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the left. The right hand, think of it, most people are right-handed. If I'm going to strike you on your right cheek, I have to strike you this way with the back of my hand in order to hit your right cheek. That was a formally defined insult in Israel. That was the way someone formally insulted you and said, you're wrong, I'm attacking your dignity and your pride. And Jesus says, all right, when that happens, what do you do? What is that to you after all, he says? Something that really matters that much, that you must match the quarrelsomeness of this person? It's interesting that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul is giving the qualifications for an elder in the church, we often perhaps overlook this, that elders must be, quote, those who are temperate, self-controlled, not given to violence, and not quarrelsome. Four different related descriptions that elders must be those, if their faith is going to be mature and they're going to be wise and balanced, they aren't those whose candle of rage rises up on the moment. Jesus still gave us the procedure of Matthew 18 and said, if someone has 
uh, harmed you in some way or done wrong against you, you are to go to them and tell them their fault. I don't think there's a conflict, folks, between Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. It's the same Lord speaking in the same gospel. There he said, there's a way to discuss a problem. Bring a witness with you if you have to. Bring the elders if you have to, if he won't hear you. Matthew 18 is not obliterated by Matthew 5. You can still work things out. You could still go to court if you needed to. That's not wrong. But Jesus is simply saying here, don't fall to the level of that hot-headed person who comes to you seeking his own kind of justice, and, and it's primarily with some kind of violence, either in words or actual physical attack. Don't go that way. Now, that doesn't also say that you cannot obey the dictates of Romans 13. When the state must rise up, when Hitler and his forces are ready to roll into England or roll into the United States, are we supposed to put up a sign and say, welcome to England, fine lots for sale, German army, discount rates? Of course not. They stood up. They stood courageously. They stood alone for a long time. And they were right to stand against the tyrant, just as there are many situations today where nations must protect their citizens, or maybe, maybe they're protecting another whole group of people outside their border who the tyrant is attacking, and they're intervening on behalf of those people. How can we argue that states should not use defensive force. I do not think the Bible for a moment says that that is wrong or that a Christian is wrong if your conscience says, I need to stand and fight that injustice. You're trying to live between two kingdoms, and sometimes it gives you difficult choices. But fourthly, I give you these two practical lessons from our text. One is that if the individual is somehow taking from you money or some possession of yours, as is implied here, your, your coat. They wore two couple different coats, and Jesus was saying if he takes the outside coat and you willingly give it to him, maybe he needs your inner coat as well. Give that to him too. What have you really lost is the point. You, like I, watch TV filming of tragedies when people's homes have been destroyed by a hurricane or a tornado or a fire. And it's so interesting, and I I speak respectfully because I've never been in this situation. I've never had that kind of a loss. But I hope I speak respectfully of how I listen to people who respond to the news reporter. And here's their house, a smashed, flat pancake, or all burned up. And one person is reacting and saying, Oh, no, it's so awful. It's so terrible. Everything I ever worked for is gone. What will I do? What will I do? And, and this person is just bereft. They, they, their whole world has disappeared. And then here's a similar house, similar person, similar reporter, and the person is saying, we got the dog. Thank God we all got out. Nobody was hurt. It's only stuff. We're going to rebuild. And I want to say, what's the difference there? Well, the difference is that one person has learned to sit rather loose on the ownership of their possessions. Their life is not defined by their stuff, most of which could be dealt away in a garage sale anyway, and you wouldn't make any money at the garage sale. Jesus is not saying we should be the doormats of the world or that we should just invite people to walk all over us. 
It may be necessary that we would go to court if that is a just thing. It may be necessary that we call that person to account and say, I need to sit down and talk with you about what you said about me. We need to have a better understanding. But what he's saying above all else is, your possessions, your rights, your holy anger is not the thing to be valued above all else. And in fact, you can actually show yourself to be in a spiritually superior position, a morally superior position to that individual if you will simply let the thing go. Let it go. You will, by doing that, share in the sufferings of Jesus. Let me remind you of Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7. There, a prediction was made by Isaiah that vividly came true in the life of Jesus. The prophet said this. He spoke in the first person as if it was him it was happening to. I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. I have set my face like a flint, and no, I will not be put to shame. What is that predictive of? You know what it is. Jesus himself in his suffering before the cross. I've set my face like a flint. I will not be put to shame. It appears that these soldiers who spit on me and whip me and my flesh is all lacerated and bloody, it appears that they're in a position of being winners. They're not. They're losers. Jesus was the winner. He was doing what God called him to do when he suffered for our sake, holding his tongue, not ranting, not arguing, not, you know, coming back at those soldiers with his fists raised. And in light of that, I put that together with 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. I've told you on various occasions before what I regard to as one of the most majestic and challenging passages of the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, 21. Peter writes, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. How exactly? What do you have in mind, Peter? Here's what he had in mind. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus knew that the ultimate verdict didn't come from that time, that moment in history when he was being so horribly abused and mistreated. It would come from the court of God before the throne of God when all things would be put right. And he entrusted himself to that judgment, to that court. And it seems to me that the question to us is, what court do we entrust ourselves to? The opinions of some angry person? The out-of-control job summary performance review by some angry guy that just doesn't seem to like you and you can't work with? Whose justice will you ultimately trust in? Many people say by their actions, while I trust in whatever justice I can carve out for myself by asserting myself, getting mad, and getting back to people and letting them know they can't trample on me. 
Well, you know what? That person just about always loses in the end. If someone asks you to carry a burden one mile, Jesus says, you know how to be morally superior to him? Carry the burden two miles. If he asks you for your outside jacket, give him your shirt too. You show that you are his moral and spiritual superior. A wronged party in the end gains immense power over a persecutor by showing more noble conduct. You doubt that? Let me remind you of local history. 2006, it hardly seems possible, it's been that long ago. 2006, suddenly, in an everyday morning of Lancaster County, the news snapped on and came on and stayed on because of a place most of us didn't even know existed in our county called Nickel Mines, PA. I can't even speak about it without emotion. Do you remember Amish children being murdered senselessly? Ridiculous, vengeful anger in a mind gone askew, and children were killed. And do you remember what happened after? I'm sure you do. The whole world, all the TV sets in America were tuned to Lancaster County. And people were astounded as our Amish neighbors forgave the killer. And they were the ones who went to his funeral and prayed for his family and befriended his parents. The general public said, what is this? How do these people do that? They should be screaming. They should be cursing. They should be beating their fists against the family of this man. But they proved themselves the moral and spiritual superiors of those who only knew violence and anger and retribution. At some time in life, many of us are going to taste some degree, not, I hope, that extreme. But Charles Spurgeon once said, a time comes for almost every Christian when you will be the anvil upon which bad men will thrust their hammers. Wouldn't you rather entrust yourself to the great God who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Maybe not today, maybe not in your lifetime. But Jesus, before his cross and on his cross, silently trusted eternal justice. And his way is perfect and his example is right. And we can say, as he did, because he helps me, I cannot be disgraced. Thanks be to God. Dear Father, I pray for someone who today in a tough situation and some angry person is beating on him at work a relative a neighbor there's some situation that a person just cannot seem to be satisfied and all they have is criticism and rage and injustice I pray that you'd make your people wise and discerning to know when to just give that example of Jesus if we need to, just walk away. Or if it's more in line to sit down and say, brother, we need to talk about what's wrong between us. 
But Father, help us to be those whose example would preach by its nobility and by its likeness to what Jesus himself did. Help us. In his name we pray. Amen.